or says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, be honest. How many of you in hearing that said, what in the world is going on? I mean, what a weird passage, right? Like, it just feels like pastiche, like different things taken here and there. I mean, uh, fig tree, uh, cleansing of the temple. What in the world is that connected? And is Jesus hangry right now? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Good question. We're going to answer some of those questions today. But what I need to tell you here in the introduction, because it's going to impact how I'm going to teach you this text. What I need to tell you is that that Mark is using a literary device, a technique that he's used before, but if you haven't been with us for a long period of time, this may be the first time you've seen this, and it's called a sandwich, a very theological term biblical scholars came up with, right? Sandwich. And think about a sandwich, right? You know, you get get the bread on the outside, unless you're paleo or keto, then it's lettuce wrap. Uh, But you've got the sandwich, you've got the meat, or if you're a vegetarian or vegan, you've got something else there in the middle, And, and together it holds things together, Right? And so what you're seeing is something about a fig tree on the front end of the temple, on the back ends, more on the, t- uh, on the fig tree, right? This is the bread. And then you get the meat in the middle about the temple. And what you're going to see is, in this literary device, what Mark does is he takes two seemingly unrelated things and he connects them together and you see something that you wouldn't see otherwise. It's like this. When I was a kid... I would uh, stare at a patch of grass, right, in the sunshine. And you know how it is when you first look at a patch of blades of grass, you think, oh, there's not a lot going on. But if you stare at it long enough, what do you begin to see? You begin to see a whole ecosystem of life at the blades, at the roots going on. And, And that's what happens. The more that you stare at this passage, the more that you look at the whole sandwich, the more you see things that will blow you away, as it has for me, and I hope it has for you this morning. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk this morning about a, a couple of contrasts. One is we're going to look at the fullness of Jesus. Because remember what Mark's, what we said last week about Mark? Mark is slowing everything down. He wants to see in a much more granular level that he's a king. And we're going to see that in the fullness today. But then, by contrast, we're going to see the emptiness of religion. This passage really puts on display just how empty religion is. Some of you are brand new. You're saying, I can't believe I'm at a church and you just said that religion's empty. I'll explain, but that's what's going on here. But then what happens as a result of seeing the fullness of Jesus and the emptiness of religion, wait for it, the fruitfulness of life that comes out of that. That's where we're going today. And so, as I said, remember, I said, well, because the sandwich is a little bit different this morning, I'm not going to start at the beginning. I'm starting in the meat. In the middle, we're going to start with verses 15 to 16. So join with me there. Look at this here. We're going to look at the fullness of Jesus. He's at the temple. It says this. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay, how many of you have this picture of gentle Jesus? All right. Get ready to throw it out, right, is what it feels like. Who is this guy? And by the way, John's gospel, all the, all the gospels mention the scene, but John's gospel, it says that he also had a whip that he constructed. And so he's going to town on all the people. Now, why in the world is he doing this, right? It begs the question. Now, 
I want to show you a picture. This is of a, a diagram of the temple as it would have been. Do we have it? There we go. All right. So this is uh, what's called the Temple Mount. It's at a high place in Jerusalem. And, and the Mount of Olives is just on the other side of a little valley. You see that, that bridge or that gate there. On the, on the other side there is the Mount of Olives. Now, it, you see the buildings there in the middle. This is kind of where the Holy of Holies was. And this is where the Jewish people would come to get as close as they could to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in, but the other parts of the building they would go in. But look at that massive courtyard surrounding the buildings. Now, what's going on there? Well, that's called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, here's why that's important. Jesus, what does he see? Right? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of tables being set up. By the way, you remember last week, if you were here, we ended in verse 11. And remember in verse 11, it says that Jesus, uh, after the triumphal entry, there's this kind of a mini parade, as it were, and they're celebrating, saying, Hosanna, the, the, the house of David has come, the Messiah has come. How exciting that is. And it says that late in the evening, before they would go back to Bethany where they're staying, in a suburb, and late in the evening, they went to the temple, just he and his disciples, there's no one there. And it says he looked around, and then he went back. What I didn't tell you is what he saw. This is what he saw. He saw hundreds, if not thousands, of tables set up. This, by the way, is like multiple football fields in size here, this courtyard. Okay. Now, you got the picture in your mind, so imagine all these tables. There's no one around the tables, but there are all these tables there. Okay. So we're also told in John's gospel that after he, he overturns the tables, that a bunch of the religious leaders came to him and said, by whose authority are you doing these things? Now, this is where you get verse 17. So they're, they're questioning, they're wondering, what has Jesus done here? And look at what it says in verse 17. And he was teaching them in response and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is going on? Here's what's going on. The court of Gentiles, they've set up a marketplace. Now, here's the thing. There was another place to set up an exchange uh, during the Passover season, all the different uh, animals that you get to purchase for the sacrifices in the temple. That took place on the Mount of Olives. So again, remember there's that picture. Let's go back to the picture real quick, if we can. Um, outside the, the walls of the temple all right, is the Mount of Olives. And what you would do is, if if you're a pilgrim, you would come in by the way of the Mount of Olives through the East Gate. Remember that? Last week, the East Gate. And you would purchase, right? And so you had Roman coin, because that's the coin of the realm. And by Jewish law, you could not use Roman coins in the temple, right? Those dirty pagan Romans. And so you had to transfer it. You had to exchange it. And so you had money changers there, changing it from the Roman coin to what's called the shekel. And with your shekel, now you purchase an animal. And you would take the animal down off the Mount of Olives into uh, the temple area. And a priest would take that and would sacrifice it as a symbol of the atonement for your sin. There at the Passover festival. This is all about atonement. The festival, the greatest festival of Judaism. What's the problem? Because of, of greed, the religious officials have decided to compete with the officials on Mount of Olives. And now they've set up another market where... These are all the tables that Jesus sees in the court of the Gentiles. What's the problem with that? Where are the Gentiles going to worship now? Here's the problem. Uh, have you ever, you know, have you ever seen the pictures of the New York Stock Exchange? 
I've never been. I'm not even sure if you can. I, I know that, uh, where's Christian? Christian Hempel, he's actually uh, been on the, the floor of the stock exchange. I've actually seen a picture of him there with the company that he was with. Maybe you've, you've been there yourself. But you've seen the video. You've seen the pictures. It is pandemonium, right? Buy, buy, buy. Sell, sell, sell. Like, it's like, if you want to find a bunch of people who are ready to have a heart attack, just look at the New York Stock Exchange, right? <laughs> What's going on there on the floor? That is pandemonium. Now, hold that picture in your mind. That's what the court of the Gentiles look like. Buy, buy, buy. Sell, sell, sell. This is why Jesus is ticked off. Verse 17 is actually a quote from Isaiah 56, 7. The promise that my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. The nations can't worship Imagine trying to open up a retreat center as part of the New York Stock Exchange. What would happen? Nothing. <laughs> because you can't pray. You can't reflect. You can't meditate in an environment like that. And Jesus is pissed off. Because the, the very place where the nation should be gathered. Remember, what is the mission of the church? I've said this here before. So I'm going to quiz you. Let's see how you're doing here. What is, the, what is the mantra? What is the narrative from the Old Testament? I'll give you half of it. I will bless you so that... You might be a blessing to the what? To the nations. This is the whole of the Old Testament. If you want to know what is the Old Testament about, it's about that. Through you, Israel, you will be a blessing to the nations. And what has Israel done with a blessing? Selfishly, with greed in their hearts, they've taken it to themselves, casting out the Gentiles, as it were. And so here's the two things I want you to see about the fullness of Jesus, at least today that Jesus can get righteously angry. There's a good place for anger. And and we need to to divorce ourselves from this image that Jesus is always just gentle. That is not who Jesus is. Ephesians 4.26, by the way, says this, be angry and do not sin in your anger. Be angry. So in other words, what he's presupposing there is it possible to get angry and do so in a way. Have any of you ever felt anger towards injustice? I mean, we live in the city, y'all. We, we know something about, you know, you know, being angry at injustice, right? That's what we say, at least. Like, we, we, you know, and what, that is God-given. Whether you're religious this morning is besides the point or not. Like, uh, like that is God-given. You've been designed, when you see injustice, to get righteously angry at whatever you see. But see, part of the problem for us is in our brokenness, we have family rules. And some of our family rules go like this. Like, never, never talk about family in public, right? That children should be seen, not heard. You know, things like that. These are the unwritten family rules, kind of the Ten Commandments that every family has. But for some of you, one of your family rules is never get angry. Never get angry. Others of you, it's always be angry. <laughs> right? You know, that's the only thing you ever saw from mom and dad was anger, anger, anger. And no wonder you struggle with it yourself, right? What do you see with Jesus? Righteous anger. You know what that means? Pastor Mike is so good about this. He has a whole set of teachings. Some of you have been to see him individually or if you're married as a couple, whatever. And he talks a lot about being in the box. Being, what it means is to be integrated. And so this, when, the difference between a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger is this. You're either in the box or you're outside the box. Meaning that you're either integrated between your reason, right? Like you, you know what you need to say. You know what you need to do. And you do it in such a way that you, you, uh, you communicate that you're angry, but in such a way that you're not overcome amygdala hijack. 
So if you ever experienced that, I have. I remember when I was dating Kirsten. You know, I was really rocking the boat bad, y'all. I was really bad. And, uh, and I remember she was so angry with me because I was rocking the boat uh, in the, the apartment. And, uh, and uh, she's like, yeah, I do. And, uh, and she goes in the bathroom. She comes back out. And, like, I mean, she's, she's still angry, but she's so rational, too. Like, and what she says, you need to go home and you need to figure out this relationship. Kind of thing like that. That, that is being integrated with your anger. Now, I've flown off the handle plenty of times, amygdala hijack. You know what I'm talking about, fight or flight, freeze, that sort of thing like that. You know how long Jesus had to consider his anger? Not just the day before, centuries. You see, he's God. This has been a long time coming. Now, in a second, I'm going to show you how that relates to the figs. You're going to see something, you're like, oh, that's how that connects. Ah. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards first, though. He was a preacher from the 1700s. A lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and his sacrifice for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both. Because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, there is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. You know what Edwards is saying? He's perfect in the lamb. He's perfect as a lion. Make no mistake. Jesus Christ came more than be a lamb in your life, but be a roaring lion as well. Remember I said this last week, he didn't come to overthrow your enemies only, he came to overthrow you. He's come to disrupt you as well. And I think one thing, this is a side issue, but I think one is that we can learn from that is some of us in here, we're really good at being lions. We're, we're, we're like the hammer without the velvet. Everything's a nail. We can be blunt in our anger and so forth. And other of you is like, no, you're the opposite. You're like, you, you excel at, at gentleness and meekness. And one of the things we learn from Jesus is to be both. And so for some of us, we need to learn how to be more lamb-like. But for others of us, we need to be more lion-like. And learn that there's a place for that, the roaring lion. And we're going to see exactly what the roaring lion does here. But I want you to hold that image together because it leads here to the second thing. Because he's a king, remember? This is the authority of the king. By whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus looks at them essentially and says, by whose authority are you doing these things? This is my temple. I have a right to be angry, righteously so. Which leads to the second aspect of his character. Today, that I want you to see that he's a judge. Now, why do I mention that? Well, think with me about the ancient world, about what was the point of the temple. Not just the, the temple in Jerusalem, but any temple of any religion. What would happen typically is that you would place the temple in the highest mountain. Or at least in a high mount that symbolically represented the closest distance between heaven and earth. Right? And so this is where your God would come to dwell among you. And so the closest places to heaven, they would come down, they would condescend, they would descend down, and they would reside in the temple. So the temple then becomes the symbol to the nations, to all the people, of who your God is. What is his character or her character? What is her might? What is her metal? And that sort of thing. What is the, the character traits of this God you find in the temple and the priests of the temple and those who go to the temple? They're to represent God. And so here's the temple and what's happening instead. Remember, who is Yahweh? He's the one true living God, the, the Scriptures say. And what's happening? He's not the one true living God for anyone but the Jews. If you're a Roman, 
If you're, if you're a, a, just a Gentile, there's no place for you the temple. Gosh, I think there's something here for us as religious people, right? I mean, let, let me just ask this question. Would people want to know your God based upon what they see in your life? The way that you worship, the way that you live between the Sundays. Now, I, the, and I'm going to come back to why that's so important here about the temple here at the end of the sermon. But I want you to see right now that the, that the one temple is being mocked. The character of God is being mocked. Why? Because you know what's happening in the temple? The temple was the epicenter of Jewish nationalism. And so what that means is, remember what I said last week, that at Passover, Pilate comes not to celebrate and say, Yay, Yahweh, but to put a tamp down on all the militancy. Because Passover was the season of freedom. And it was the season where if there's going to be insurrection, it's going to be now. And Jerusalem is where it's going to be at. And you know where the headquarters for militancy is? The temple. So no wonder there wasn't a place for the God-fearing Gentiles to come and worship Yahweh. Because they're part of the Roman system in their mind's eye. They're not Jewish. And so they're, they're cast out, so to speak. And so God's being mocked as just a provincial nationalistic God, like all the other nations and their gods, rather than being the true one living God for all people, for all the nations. No wonder Jesus is so ticked off, y'all. And not only that, they're a den of robbers, verse 17 says. Now, some people think that when it says den of robbers, oh, there must be extortion going on in the temple. There's not one scintilla of evidence of that that they were charging too much or something like that. There's no evidence of that. I looked through it, studied it. You know why he calls them a den of robbers? For something much more important than extortion. They have robbed the nations of worship. This is the massive charge laid before the temple and its people. You were designed to bring blessing to the nations, and that is not happening. This is now what leads now to the fig tree. Okay, so now we're going to go back. Verses 13 to 14. Okay, here's what it says. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, let's be honest. On the surface of things, this passage doesn't make Jesus look very good. Right? It makes him look cranky, hangry. Like, come on, this is guy, remember, this is the guy that uses all these agricultural metaphors in parables and things like that. And he's expecting, is what it looks like, he's expecting a fig tree, you know, that's not in season. I mean, Mark says, almost parenthetically, you know, they're not in season, you know, kind of thing like, like that. It makes Jesus look bad, right? But if you dig in, you realize, oh no, quite the opposite. Let me tell you what's really going on here. Jesus is a prophet, and he's priest, and he's king. But what we see here is his prophet. And what do you see in the Old Testament with prophets? They're looking for props. They're looking for opportunities to tell a story. Remember what Mark is doing. He's giving you part of the fig tree story, then suddenly we're in the temple, it's being cleansed, and now back to the fig story. Why is he doing that? He's helping us to understand that Jesus knows that there weren't supposed to be figs at that time of the year. You see, this is Passover in the springtime. And what happened was a fig tree had its leaves by the time you get to Passover. And from a distance, it looks like a vibrant tree. And so, hey, let's see if there are any figs there. Well, it would be a few more months before figs would come. But you see, unlike an orange tree, for instance, or a lemon tree, 
a lot of the tropical fruit trees, you can see their fruit from a distance. I remember in Orlando, uh, before uh, you know, Orlando really blew up in size, and there were orange trees everywhere. You can see all the oranges on the trees from miles away. But you know with a fig tree, you actually have to go straight up to the fig tree because the branches cover, the leaves cover the fruit. So you have to kind of pull it open to see if there's fruit there. Now Jesus knew there wasn't going to be fruit there. But he's making a point. You know what the point is? From a distance, you look fruitful. But when I get up close, I realize there's nothing here. So when he curses the fig tree, what's he really talking about? The temple. Because from a distance, in all of its glory, in all of its vibrancy, Passover, hundreds of thousands of people are in town. He gets up close and realizes death, corruption. When he curses the fig tree, you see, it is a picture of what is already true about the temple. That it's dead. This is the reason why he curses the fig tree and passes judgment. Here's the other thing I didn't tell you. In the Old Testament, often Israel is compared to different agricultural pictures, vine, grapes, things like that. Also a fig tree. Jeremiah 8.13. This happens multiple times, by the way, throughout the Old Testament. Here's just one example. This is God speaking through the prophet. When I would gather them, meaning my people, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. There's the fruit. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This is almost like fulfilled prophecy. Said so you are you are this unfruitful fig tree. And so, here's where I want to end this, this point. And by the way, I'm going to move much faster than the last part here. Here's what I want you to see here. I think that 2,000 years later, all of us in this room, whether we call ourselves followers of Christ or not, I think all of us have a question that we need to answer. And that is, do our lives look fruitful? What is it that we claim to be? Is, is, it, is the fact that we're, we attend church every Sunday, is the fact that we're faithful with our tithes and offerings? Or, or, or is it our hearts? Like what, the point of what, what Jesus is saying here is like, like in fact, David talked about this in one of the Psalms. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not pleased with just sacrifices in the temple. I want your heart, he says, a sacrifice of play, praise. Your heart's to be circumcised. And so I think it begs the question for all of us in this room today. Are we the kind of people that look fruitful, not only from distance, but when you get close. That's the question. And we're going to come back to, and we're going to fully answer that question here in a second. But I think what I want you to see now is how this relates to the emptiness of religion. I've just described to you that at the, on the surface of things, as it were, Jesus is going after corruption. He's going after what has been corrupted, and that is the purpose of the temple, to be a blessing for the nations, to create fruit for the nations. And instead, it's being corrupted. And so the, one of the purposes of the temple was being corrupted. It's being that God himself is being misrepresented. That there are being his representatives being made in his image. They're not reflecting. They're not imaging who he actually is. But there's a second purpose to the temple, and it's this. It's the place where we learn what is sacrifice all about. What was it intended for? And here's where we're going to begin to see not only the corruption of the religion, but also its emptiness. This is where the penny dropped for me. I was going through my notes. I, some of you, a few of you actually were there on our front porch 17 years ago when we started the church. And we went through Mark's gospel. I remember I pulled out my notes this week just for kicks. I was like, what did I say 17 years ago? By the way, this is the first time I've ever preached this passage. 
But I taught it on my front porch 17 years ago. I was flipping through my notes. I was reading what I was putting in there. I was like, oh my gosh, this is where the penny dropped for me. Like I saw something that I'd never seen before. This is what I want to share with you now. I realized that Jesus didn't come simply about corruption in the temple. But he came for another reason as well. On this day when he was turning over the tables in the, t- in the temple. To understand that you have to understand something about the history of the temple, okay? Now, I'm a, really brief, right? For those of you who love history, you're going to love this, right? For those of you who don't love history, I'm sorry. But just bear with me for about two or three minutes here. So the story of the temple actually begins uh, not with the physical structure in Jerusalem. It actually begins in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God's dwelt, presence dwelt among his people, Adam and Eve. The whole place, y'all, was a garden. Temple, I mean. It was a garden temple. The the whole precincts of the temple was lush. It was flourishing, as it were. And what happens? Sin enters Genesis chapter 3. And what happens to Adam and Eve? They're cast out of the temple. They're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the presence of God. And do you remember what was at the gate of the Garden of Eden? A flaming sword. Now, what was the purpose of that sword? What did it symbolize? Judgment. If anyone were to, to try to get into perfection again, If anyone were to try to come in, the sword would fall, as it were. It was a symbol that said that that I am perfect, I am holy, and you are not, and you shall not pass without the sword falling upon you. So fast forward now, Israel is now being formed as a nation, and they're now uh, traveling through the sands of the desert. And what do they have? They have their tabernacle, sort of like a temple on wheels, as it were. And so the tabernacle for generation after generation is, is going with them closer and closer to the promised land. And it says that God, as fire and smoke, led them out of Egypt. And, and he would dwell in, in the sort of holy of holies in this tabernacle. His presence was always with them, but still separated because there's a priest who had to go into the Holy of Holies. They could not, only the priest representing God's perfection. And so what happens? David gets to the throne, he conquers, and then his son Solomon builds this magnificent temple, as it were. Not this one. The one that Jesus saw was one that got destroyed a few centuries later, but this first beautiful temple of glory where God was dwelling. And it says that God dwelt among his people with Solomon on the throne. And every year at Passover, a chief priest would come in to the Holy of Holies. Now, here's the thing. Only one time a year did this happen with one priest would go into the Holy of Holies and there were certain instructions. And if the priest didn't do them right, he could be struck down, the text says in the, in the Old Testament. And so you know what they would do? They actually would wrap a rope around his ankles. It's just in case he did it wrong. Talk about pressure to get it right, right? Like you go in there once a year, and what are you doing? You're making one sacrifice for the nation, for their collective sins as it were. And then hopefully not to have to be pulled out, but to complete the task of Passover, the Day of Atonement. What was Jesus doing? Yes, he was turning over the tables because it was supposed to be a house of prayer. This is corruption. But he wasn't just turning over the tables. It was turning over the system of religion itself. This is why elsewhere Jesus says, Come all you who are weary, burdened, heavy laden. Come to me now, I'll give you rest. The message transliteration says, Come all you who are exhausted by religion. You see, religion is saying, what do I need to sacrifice? What do I need to do to get in good with God or the gods or whoever your deity is? All religions are exactly the same in that way. They have different names, but it's all the same system. I must work myself. I must do something here. But see, the temple was set up 
to be a symbol of something to come that was always grace-centered and grace-filled. And one day, once and for all, one sacrifice. And the Day of Atonement every year was a reminder to God's people, this is what we're looking for. But by the time that, that, that Jesus is on the scene, it was just empty religion. Going through the motions. Input equals output. And so Jesus comes along and turns over the tables, not just because of corruption, because what he's saying is the system is dead. It was always temporary anyway. But the Messiah is here. Did you know that according to the historian Josephus, 250,000 lambs a year were slaughtered for one week in Passover. A quarter of a million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of mutton. A lot of lamb shops and things like that. I'm hungry. thinking about it. But man, there's a lot going on here. And all these slaughtered. And what is Jesus doing? Look at verse 18. This is the response to what Jesus does. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Do you see what happened? Jesus overturns the system. He confronts them as a king. And the response is, we just signed your death warrant. You see, at Passover, Jesus comes in to replace the quarter million of lambs that were slaughtered. Don't you see, he is the final Passover. And as the final Passover, he says, it's my blood once and for all. One sacrifice for all time. This is what the book of Hebrews celebrates about Jesus. That he's the final high priest. He was the sacrifice, though, as the final high priest. And he doesn't just curse a fig tree, friends. He goes to the cursed tree himself. This is remarkable. No wonder Mark put these two sections together. He's giving us a picture of our king. And it leads lastly here to the last thing. This is where I want to conclude. To the fruitful life. How do we see that? Where do we get that? Scott, where are you getting that from this text in particular? Well, it's interesting. You know, I mentioned John's gospel in the whip. And when he tells the story, uh, it says that after he overturns the table, they come to him. By whose authority are you doing these things? Now, listen to what verse 19 says. Of John chapter 2, and this telling of it, says this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it says in verse 20, right after that, they said, scoffing, are you kidding me? It took 40 years to build this thing. We're still not even really done with it, but it took 40 years, and you're going to do it in three days? And in verse 21, it's brilliant. John says, they did not realize that he was talking about his body. You see what's happening here? Do you see what in the curse of the temple, he's saying it is dead. It was never intended to be the place where I dwelled for eternity with you. Do you see what's happening there? And it's connection to prayer. Remember, my temple, my house, a place of prayer for the nations. What's happening here in verses 22 and following is it's looking for prophetically, looking for just a few weeks, a few months to come when the church is founded, where the temple goes. Listen to this, verses 22 and 23. Now, you're wondering, what in the world did this section on prayer have to do with anything with the temple? Here's what I want you to say. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come true to pass, it will be done for him. What is he saying here? He's saying the place of prayer is no longer the temple. Why? Because I'm the temple. And then what he's saying, on the other side of my crucifixion, you're the temple. That's what the church is. The book of Acts is all about the construction of a new temple. And it's no longer a building. 
is no longer empty religion. It's you and me filled with flesh and blood. And what he does here is he pointing to a picture of something that's anti-religion. You see, at its core, when you really understand what prayer is, it is anti-religion. Why? Because, uh, because religion at its core is input equals output. Ever gone to a foreign land and you go, or maybe not, maybe it's here, but you go to a temple and you see all these people genuflecting and, and in other words, you know, different incantations and prayers and maybe there's a priest that gives you absolution, right, to the person that's coming in, the pilgrim coming in here. And what is Jesus saying? That's, that's boring. I think magic at its core is boring because it's about control. And we get bored when we're in control. I mean, that's what, that's what religion is. Religion is boring. The reason why you're bored, if you grew up in a, in a place that just was empty religion, the reason why you're so bored is because you're supposed to be bored. Because it's empty. What is he saying about prayer? He's saying you can't possibly be bored if you understand prayer. Why? Because it's not input equals output, friends. He's saying you, you want to move mountains? You know what he's saying there? You want to see the, the, the impossible happen? There's nothing boring about that. So here's the question you've got to ask this morning. What is it that I have defined as impossible in my life? I'm going to tell you, this is the story of faith. Now, listen to what William Lane, one commentary, he says this, Faith is quiet confidence in the power and goodness of God who accomplishes everything. Let me repeat that. Faith is quiet confidence in the power and the goodness of God who accomplishes everything. How many of us in here have struggled with faith? It's directly related to prayer. I will tell you just a few weeks ago in a, in a really hard spot in my life, just a few weeks ago, I was at a really low point. I was depressed, and, and I was losing faith. I was struggling deeply. There's stuff going on here with the church, yes, but there's stuff going on with, uh, with our kids and our family, and I was just I was in a really hard place. And thank, thank God, you know, have you ever been placed that where you're just low and someone comes in your life? You know, for me, it was Kirsten. You know, she just reminded me of God's goodness. I needed to hear that. See, the Christian life is not about having it all together and being in control. Far from it. It's being not in control and saying, Lord, I know that you are. And I, I trust in quiet confidence that you are good. And you say, yeah, but what about verse 24? What do we do with this? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Doesn't it sound like, like man, if I just believe it by faith, it's going to happen? Health and wealth, prosperity, isn't that what this is about? No. You know how we know that? Because Jesus himself, Mark chapter 14, wait till we get there in the springtime. But what's happening? Mark chapter 14 is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way other than the cross for me to accomplish what needs to happen here? And he says in verse 36, yet not my will, but yours. You see, prayer is vibrant. Prayer is dynamic because we're not in control. But we look to the one who is in control and we say, look, Lord, this is what I want. I don't get you sometimes. I don't understand. Why have you not answered my prayer regarding my child? Why have you not answered my prayer regarding my career? Why have you not answered the prayer the way I thought you would regarding fill in the blank? The Christian life is not boring. It is dynamic that requires strength and resiliency, and courage to say, at the end of the day, you know things that I don't know. And I trust by faith that though you're not answering my prayer the way that I thought you would, um, I would want what you want if I knew what you knew. That's what this is about. That's the reason why in verse 25 he talks about forgiveness. He says, when you're in prayer and you have someone against you, 
deal with that first? Like this is, this is man, this is courage. See, I've got to deal with this. This is dynamic. This is vibrant. That's what I want you to see. What looked like something unrelated to the temple and fig trees is directly related because it's about having a vibrant, dynamic relationship with God. God came for your heart. He didn't come for your pocketbook. He didn't come for your moral behavior. He didn't come for any of those things. He came for your heart. And because of that, out of joy, because of his grace, we now live in joyful obedience where things like our pocketbooks and our morality, other things, begin to change because we have become more fruitful. Remember what I said. I'll come back to it. Here's where I conclude. I said, do you look like the temple? Now you are the temple. And now the question is, is my life one that looks fruitful? And is it actually fruitful? That's the story of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is why we take so seriously the pathway of discipleship here at City Church. And so I ask you here in conclusion before I pray, is there a fruitful life? And are you looking to Jesus Christ, the one who bore fruit in you and who cursed sin and death so that you wouldn't have to go to the tree, that you wouldn't wither at the roots? Do you trust him for fruitfulness? You say, God, I'm crying out to you in prayer. I'm growing in my prayer life. I'm asking that you go further up and further in my life. Make me fruitful for the nations. Change my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this difficult passage that's dynamic at the same time. We thank you for the promise that you would destroy religion itself. Yeah. That you would destroy all the barriers in the temple. We just sang in song just a few minutes ago that the veil of the temple was torn in two. For there you said, the empty system of religion is over. What could never fully and finally satisfy you has now been satisfied in my son, Jesus Christ. I get the feeling as I sit here and pray, to stand here and pray, that there's some people here today, they're hungry and they're thirsty to say, I want that. I've never had that before. I've had lots of religion. I've had lots of anti-religion that was not this. Father, would you give them what their, what their hearts were made for, what, their, what they thirst for, what they hunger for? Would you feed them, O Lamb of God, O Lion of Judah, the one who was slain, but the one who conquered, the conquering Lamb, the great roaring Lion, who defeated sin and death, would you come into our lives and make us more like you this week between the Sundays? We pray this in the name of Redeemer and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now we take some time to respond to God's word, first through confession. I just want to give you a moment, just maybe with this question to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. Where, what in your life is getting in the way of fruitfulness? Where do you hold the lion and the lamb back? And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that, and then we'll pray together in a moment the prayer of confession.